Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this message, you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of God and grow in your love for God and love for others. It is God's desire for us to be members of and regularly participate in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you are not attending a local church right now, we encourage you to take that step. If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. It is a joy uh, to be here this morning uh, with all of you. If you could open your Bibles to Psalm 113. Psalm 113. Uh, If you don't know where that is, just crack your Bible in half. It should be somewhere around there. And let me uh, read this for us. If you could stand as we read God's word together, that would be wonderful. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray. Father, we again bless you and thank you for your word. Without it, we have nothing. But with your word, we have light and truth. We have help. We have clarity. If we didn't have your word and if you had not spoken, we would just be making stuff up. But because you have spoken, now we can know truth. And so God, by your spirit, would you help us today to understand and to love what you help us understand, and then to be empowered to live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I love uh, watching is after a game, could be, you know, basketball game, soccer game, whatever it is, and the camera pans to the sideline, and you'll see maybe LeBron James or something like that untying his shoes, signing them, and giving them to some, you know, eight-year-old, 10-year-old kid on the sideline who's just absolutely in awe of what's happening. Or Messi takes his sneakers off, his shoes off, and then signs them and gives them to some kid on the side of the pitch. And you see in their face this kid that's just absolutely stunned. Like, I have no idea why this is happening to me, but this is so good. Or when you hear of stories, maybe you'll see a little video or something of a really famous athlete or singer going to a hospital, uh, maybe to a terminal ill child, and spending time with them, getting to know them by name, getting to know their story, sitting down with them, giving them a hug, snapping a picture. And that child is thinking, who am I so small 
so weak, so insignificant that this really important person would spend so much time with me, would be so interested in me, would know my name and want to hang out with me. I love that. I love those snapshots of seeing the wonder in those children's eyes. And I I think it captures a bit of how we are to respond to the Lord and to his beauty. Because when we really think of the Lord, there really isn't anyone more great and more important and more exalted than God and us who are more small and insignificant and weak, that he would be so interested in us. It's a wonder of wonders. And it points to this beautiful aspect about the Lord, that he is so high and so great and yet so lowly and so caring that he loves to be near us even though he is high above all things. And I think this is exactly what Psalm 113 is trying to help us see and stir up in us is this wonder of a child. And you'll notice here, You'll notice here, it begins with praise the Lord, it ends with praise the Lord, and that's because it's a, it's a hallelujah hymn. Uh, there's this call on the beginning and the end, and really several times throughout it, this call for spontaneous and exuberant worship of the one true and living God. And then he goes into detail as to why. Why would we praise him. There's got to be a reason or a motive. And so he begins to spell that out for us. And we'll actually start in verse three of all the different ways in which we are to praise the Lord. And we'll kind of work backwards. Uh, Verse three, you'll notice that this, it beautifully illustrates that wherever the sun shines, that's where the name of the Lord should be praised. And of course, you know, you're, you're thinking about the world, the globe, you're thinking about all the different places as the sun rises and sets and its sunbeams shine upon all the land of the earth and the globe. That's exactly the location in which the name of the Lord is to be praised. And not only are those places to worship the Lord, water, land, animals, birds, fish, everything is to worship their creator and sustainer but especially those who bear his image. That we see here that God is not only to be praised in all places, but by all peoples. All peoples in all lands are called to worship this God because of who he is, the one true and living God. Verse two goes on to say that his praise should also not only be in all places from all peoples, but at all times, forevermore, that the praise should not stop, that the Lord should continually be delighted in and honored and worshiped all the time. God will be blessed, it says, and enjoyed and delighted in by all, pieces, all peoples in all places forevermore. And this is especially true of his people, who are called in verse one, servants of the Lord. That's an important phrase. That was to help kind of trigger the original singers of this psalm, the Israelites. That would help them remind, that would remind them of, oh yes, 
the servants of the Lord, that's because God redeemed us, rescued us up out of Egypt, the house of slavery, Scripture calls it, and God rescued us up out of that place and brought us into his home of freedom in which we now serve the Lord with joy and delight and peace. That's what that phrase was to help the original singers recall. And in light of this salvation, they're now called servants of the Lord, who, more than anyone else, have reason to bless his name and to sing hallelujah. And so hallelujahs and praise the Lord's all throughout this psalm here, short as it is. Actually, uh, Psalm 113 is the beginning of six psalms. It's like a little playlist that Jews would sing at Passover to celebrate to praise the Lord of what he had done in rescuing them up out of Egypt and how God made a way in which he gave them a way through a lamb as their substitute in order to be killed in their place and take the blood and put it over the doorposts of their homes so that God would see that animal as a substitute dying in place of their sin that he might pass over them in judgment and give them mercy instead and rescue them and say, you're coming with me and bring them out of that house into the promised land, into this house of freedom. And so they would sing these songs, typically Psalm 113, 114, were, sing, were sung at the beginning of the meal, the Passover meal, and then uh, the other four songs were sung at the end of the meal, which actually helps us understand what Jesus sang with his disciples at the Last Supper when it says that he sung a hymn with them before going out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He was singing these hymns before he himself, as the true Passover lamb, would accomplish the most definitive salvation in rescuing us out of our house of slavery of sin and bringing us into his home of freedom and salvation. All that to say, this helps us understand why this psalm and the other six psalms that follow, these psalms are full of salvation themes and redemption and restoration and renewal. And it's just packed full of hope that move us as God's people who are trusting in him to serve and say hallelujah and sing his praises. That's why they're called praise songs. These are hallelujah hymns here. And there's two main reasons that the psalmist gives us as to why, what would move us, what would compel us to worship the Lord this way, to sing hallelujah and to praise his name. And there's two main characteristics about God that he highlights. If you're taking notes, these are the two uh, characteristics that God is so strong and sovereign And at the same time, so close and caring. He's both. Verses four to six really highlight the first one that we'll look at, that God is so high, so strong, so sovereign that he is to be praised. Verse four begins, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on High. The Lord is seated on a throne. 
And this picture of God, this is the throne, this idea of God sitting on a throne is a picture of God having all power and authority to rule over all of his creation. And this is a throne that is so high, so exalted, that it's just not above uh, the nations of this world, little kings and kingdoms, or even high above the earth. It is above the heavens. That's how high it is. It's over and above the universe. That's how absolutely exalted and high God is and how pervasive his reign is over all the earth and the universe. Just, just think of that. I, I was trying to uh, get my head around, like, I, I love visualizing. I was trying to imagine what this throne would look like that's above the heavens and the earth and how high it must be. Just think of our own earth and our own sun. You know, you've probably seen it in the sky. It's about the size of a loony. It's actually quite a bit bigger. You can fit a million earths into our sun. But our sun is just one of many stars in our galaxy. It's kind of an average size. Uh, if you were to look at our galaxy, the Milky Way, there's this star called Betelgeuse. I don't know who comes up with these names, but it's a great job. Betelgeuse makes it into the top 10. It's actually about nine or 10. You can fit a million of our suns into it, but that's not even number one. The biggest star that we know of in our galaxy is called UI Scooty. <laughs> Again, great job. Uh, UI Scooty is the largest known star in our galaxy. You can fit five billion suns inside of it. It is mind-blowingly huge. But these are only three stars out of an estimated 100 thousand million stars just in our own galaxy. But our galaxy is just one of many in the universe, and scientists estimate that there's about 200 trillion galaxies in the universe, each one of them having, if they were to have about the same amount of stars as the Milky Way, our galaxy, then the best guess is that we have is around 100 billion trillion stars, each of them inconceivably massive, and all of them a bagillion, jajillion light years away. I just made that up. It means it's just mind-blowingly high and far above the earth, and God's throne is over all of it. <laughs> These stars are like marbles in his hand. It's the earth, it's like a speck of dust. His throne sits high above the universe. It's, it's like a footstool for him just to rest his feet. That's why it's so ludicrous and laughable when kings and dictators or governments or Fortune 500 companies or artists or athletes who think they're the goat begin to praise their own greatness. It's absolutely absurd. It's like an, it's like an atom on the toenail of a tick exalting its own greatness. <laughs> it just is absolutely laughable and absurd. God is so inconceivably great and high and amazing. 
And it moves us to worship. If, if we have come here enamored with our own greatness, God lovingly wants to save us from our own deception. That we would turn from being awed at ourselves to being awe, full of awe at him. That's actually what you were hardwired to do. It's sin that twists it inward. We're actually designed to be so infatuated and absolutely in awe, just in perpetual stun mode of who God is. And it moves us to worship him and sing hallelujah. Truly the Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like our God, who is seated on high? That's why verse six actually says that God has to look far down on the heavens and the earth. He's so high. He's so exalted. God has to lean over and peer way down through the universe to our small galaxy or around our sun and over the moon, getting to our green and blue planet and then past the clouds and the smog of the GTA and finding our city, finding our home, and then finding us. And he loves to do this. The majestic king of the universe looks far down. In fact, it literally means he makes himself low so that he not only can see us, but draw close to us, to be near us. King David in Psalm 8, he was, he, he was trying to wrap his head around this. He says in Psalm 8, verse 3 to 4, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David knows how strong and sovereign God is, but he's sweetly mindful of how he loves to not just peer down, but to get down and to draw close to his people. He loves that. We who are so small and so weak and so insignificant, God has a particular attraction to. He loves to draw near to us. And this is the second reason the psalmist gives praise to God and calls us to praise him. Is not, not only is he so high and strong and sovereign, but he's so lowly. He's so close and caring. So lowly, so close. So caring. God is not some distant and disinterested God at the edge of the universe that's just kind of looking out through the universe to see us and really could care less about our, and about our lives. Uh, he's not the type of God who stands far off and, and mocks us at our foolishness and our decisions or laughs at our grief or smiles at our sufferings. He's not that kind of a God. He's not the type of God, like in so many other religions, that says, do you want to draw close to me? Then here's a ladder. And you need to get busy and start climbing with every rung of obedience. And you got to do this and do that. And eventually you'll get up, up, up to me, hopefully. God's not like that. The Lord God, the one true and living God, not only looks, but leaps into action. He sees our situation, 
and sends help by sending himself to come all the way down through the universe, past the stars, all the way to us, to our very heart and conscience, to meet us in our mess. He comes so close because he is so caring. Caring enough and close enough to take us by the hand and to lift us up out of our brokenness. And this is how the psalm ends. It highlights these two ways in which God is, he makes himself so low and getting so close and near in these two specific ways. One, the Lord is described as the one who lifts the needy to a seat of royalty. Do you see that? He lifts the needy to a seat of royalty. Here it says in verse seven, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Do you know what it means to sit in dust and ashes? When your life is so broken that all your hopes and dreams have been crushed to dust, and all the things that you had hoped for and dreamt about have been burnt to ashes. It's not as though there's you know, a, a log as you're kicking through the ashes. It's not like you find a, a, a charred log here or there that you can begin to rebuild with, or you're going through the rubble and you find some stones that you can begin to rebuild things with. It is dust and ashes. There's nothing left. That is where the Lord loves to meet us. Have you been there? It's a place that is so difficult and so dark and so lonely and so horrible and so hopeless. But that is exactly where God loves to draw near and draw so close to us that he might lift us up out of the dust out of the dust and up out of the ashes that he might draw not only near to us, but draw us so close to him. The Lord God is like this. Right when we feel as though we are as good as dead, God from his sovereign seed in the heavens comes and he comes all the way down and he wants to. He loves to come. He's compelled by his own compassion to come. He loves to draw near. And this is what he has been doing all throughout history. All throughout the Old Testament, the Lord again and again would come to his people by sending his word and sending his prophets with signs and wonders. He would often physically lift one of his people up out of the dust and out of the ashes and seat them literally on a physical throne. We can think of several examples here of Joseph, who went from being innocently enslaved in Egypt to being the very prime minister of that entire empire. Or King David, he was a, a shepherd boy, the youngest of his family, left out in the pastures, and he was brought and picked by the Lord to be king and conqueror of nations, the king of Israel. We could go on and on. We could look at Gideon. We could look at Daniel. We could look at Mordecai. Specific people that God literally flipped the script, turned the tables, and took out of this lowly, lowly position and actually seated them in seats of royalty. Now, 
This isn't to say that God does this right now for every one of his kids so that now we all get physical thrones of royalty. But it does mean he can do this and that he has done this and that he loves to do this. And it does mean that ultimately he did do this spiritually for all of his children, all of his people by saving them in Christ. No one has gone so low and no one has been raised so high as Jesus. No one has gone so low as to leave heaven itself to come to earth, not merely to see man, but to become a man. Christ went lower still by not just taking on our nature, our human nature, but also taking on our human sins and taking our place on the cross. But he went even lower still by going into the grave and being buried in a tomb. And having been lowered to the lowest point, God raised him up to the highest place. Philippians 2 brings this out, that we are to have this in mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In Ephesians 2, it goes on to say how God did this in Christ when God the Father raised him, raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is seated right now, physically, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, far above all rule and authority. And the amazing thing is that he took us with him. Everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as the forgiver of our sins, as the master of our soul, as the lifter of our life, everyone who's put their faith in Christ is united to Christ so that when he rose and ascended up into heaven, we went with him spiritually. Paul brings this out in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in him. 
Beloved, he has lifted us up right now. Because we have put faith in Christ, we are united to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about that we are one with Christ spiritually. And so just as Jesus right now sits at the right hand of the Father right now, we as believers in Christ are united to him and spiritually we are seated with him spiritually right now. He has, lift us, he has lifted us up to the highest of heights, an unimaginable height. There is no higher height that Jesus could have raised us to, but to the very seat of the Prince of Peace in which he has, his very own seat of royalty enthroned above the heavens. And now, because of God's amazing ability to raise the lowly to the highest of heights, it moves us to praise him, just like it did with Mary and Hannah in Scripture, who sang similar songs of praise. Uh, we're reminded of Mary, the mother of Jesus, how she was filled with praise to God, and how, how God would, uh, it was just inconceivable why God would even think of, of picking her to lift her up out of the dust and ashes her, her name Mary means bitterness. By choosing her to be the very mother of the Messiah. And so in Luke 1, 52 to 53, it records Mary's song, often referred to as the Magnificant. And here's just a little section of the song. It says, He, God, has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. Uh, this is similar to a song sung by Hannah many centuries earlier than that in the Old Testament. In fact, verse 7 and 8 from our psalm that we're looking at in Psalm 113 is almost a direct quote from Hannah's song back in 1 Samuel 2, 5 to 8. And this is what Hannah sang. She sang, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. There it is. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Like Hannah and Mary, who praise the Lord for doing this, we praise the Lord as well because he has drawn so close and so near and is so caring that he lifts us up to a seat of royalty that we might share in his seat of honor. But like Hannah, we also praise the Lord because he, as it says in what she just sang in her song, he's the one who gives the barren a home of hope. He's the one who gives the barren a home of hope. We heard this in Hannah's song. It's right here in our psalm here today in 113, which says that he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. And this was Hannah's own story. She was married and yet barren for years, infertile, feeling the shame of infertility and even being mocked and scorned by fellow family members. 
And it's, it's absolutely clear that even within the church family, within our church family here, there are those who have experienced the pain of barrenness and infertility, the, the confusion and the disappointment that it, it creates, the frustration and the longing and the pain that it produces, the pressure and the embarrassment that can build over time. And at times, the Lord mercifully hears our prayers and grants physical children. This was the case for Hannah. And like Sarah and Rebecca before her, Hannah was helpless and hopeless to change her situation. And she cried out to the Lord for a child and God graciously granted her a child, a son, whom she named Samuel. And God gave her a home. A home here doesn't mean a townhouse or a condo. It means children. It means offspring. It means a heritage. Very similar to 2 Samuel 7, when God promises David to build him a home or build him a house. It's being used here in that same way. But the Lord doesn't always answer this way. He doesn't always answer our prayers and pleas for physical children. But just as we saw in the Old and New Testament that God doesn't always lift every believer and physically put them on a royal throne right now during our life here on earth, but instead seats all of us spiritually on his throne in heaven, so too, right now, God doesn't give every barren woman physical children now, but instead can give her spiritual children here on earth through evangelism, conversion, and discipleship, making them joyous mothers spiritually. Uh, This is the difference between the creation mandate and the Great Commission. When we read back in Genesis 1, that very first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, 26 to 27, we hear this creation mandate where God blesses and commands, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with physical children, image bearers that will reflect the glory of God. And that hasn't ceased, but it has been superseded by the gospel mandate of the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, verse 19, where Jesus himself, to whom all authority on heaven and on earth has been given, says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make spiritual children born of the Spirit of God to the glory of God, saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul actually, Paul The Apostle Paul, who never married, who never had physical children, he would often refer to those whom he saw come to Christ through his preaching or discipled in the faith under his mentorship. He would refer to them as spiritual children. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 12, uh, the disciples there in the church at Thessalonica had come to faith through his preaching, and he referred to them as his spiritual children, and he referred to himself as their spiritual father and even as a spiritual mother who had nurtured them and nursed them in the gospel. And he refers, of course, to Titus and Timothy as his sons in the faith. And so the calling to make spiritual children is the emphasis now, the priority in the New Testament, without negating the other, 
And it's even anticipated and foretold in the Old Testament as well. In Isaiah 54, it's interesting that Israel is called the barren one who would not bear. She's the one. It's actually the nation of Israel that's kind of the, the epitome of a barren woman where she is described as the one who is unable to produce spiritual children, children, Israelites, that would actually love God from the heart. And this inability to produce a Messiah, a son and a savior that would actually rescue the people. And because of Israel's idolatry and running after other gods in their unfaithfulness to the Lord, God had mercy and sent his own son through a virgin birth. And God gave Israel Jesus, who would then turn to save Israel and the world from their sins. And because of the multitude of spiritual children that were now going to come in through the work of Jesus Christ, Israel was actually commanded in Isaiah 54 to expand this house of hope, to expand, lift up the pentags, the, the tent pegs, and move them out, make this place and this tent, this building bigger because of the amount of children that are going to start flooding into this house of hope. And this is what God has done in bringing in the Gentiles, not only Jews, but also Gentiles, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue into his house of hope. And so, yes, we need to pray and to ask, just like the saints have done throughout all of history, that when we have not been given children, it's right and good for us to go to the Lord and ask that he would grant us physical children. That's a good thing. And let us, like Jesus, come close and care for those and weep with those who, when God lovingly answers by withholding that gift of physical children, that we come alongside them and weep. That is a good gift that has been withheld for God's good and mysterious purposes. But let us also fervently ask and pray and trust that the Lord would give us many spiritual children, as many as possible, that we would be joyous mothers of and fathers in the faith, so that God's home would be filled with his children from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Loved ones, the Lord is to be praised because he is so high and so strong and so sovereign and at the same time so lowly, so close, so caring that he would lift us up and seat us in his own seat of royalty and adopt us and welcome us into his own home of hope where he becomes our father and sends us out just as Jesus said, I send you as the father has sent me. I send you to go and bring other children into this home, this home of hope through the gospel. And we'll, we'll end with this. At the resurrection, we do this with eyes to the resurrection, knowing that when Jesus comes and he leaves his high and heavenly throne, the physical blessings will catch up to and match the spiritual ones. Right now, we're united to Jesus Christ and we are with him spiritually seated on that throne. But when he comes, 
He will literally put us on thrones in the new heavens and the new earth, and we will reign with him forever and ever. And we will literally see our spiritual children with new resurrected physical bodies in God's home to sing with and to worship him with forever and ever. So let us turn to Jesus today so that we can begin singing of the one who is so high and strong and sovereign and at the same time so lovely and lowly, so close and so caring. Let's pray. Father, you are good beyond words. You have given us everything we need in Christ. As the psalmist said, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. From the rising of the sun to its setting, may the name of the Lord be praised. For who is like the Lord our God. Who is like you, O God? I pray for each one of us here today. Father, would you move in our hearts to be stunned and awed at who you are. So great, so high, so near, so close. And that you love to be. You love to draw near. As you say in Isaiah, you are the one who gathers us up and carries us. You are the one who holds our right hand and walks with us. Father, would you help us by your spirit right now to understand and delight in these truths for they are true. We pray this in Jesus' name. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.